Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Donald Trump, I think, was the reason the markets ended up finishing in the black today, at least most of the major indexes. In fact, the only index that was down on the day was the NASDAQ. In fact, the NASDAQ was the only major index that was down on the week, uh, thanks to weakness in tech stocks, in particular the FANG stocks. But, you know, the comments that Trump made today basically gave hope to some people that potentially the 25 percent across the board tariffs on all Chinese imports uh, may not go into effect uh, at the beginning of next year, which is what the threat is. If the Chinese and Trump don't come to an agreement, then those tariffs are going to hit. And apparently the tariffs are basically the the stick that uh, is going to be you know, brandished by Trump and he's going to use it to hit the Chinese over the head. But the threat of this big stick is supposedly going to bring the Chinese to the table and there will be a deal that's favorable to the United States. Now, of course, if these tariffs actually go into effect, the people who are really going to be hit with the stick are going to be Americans. It's going to be American consumers who have to pay 25% more for everything they buy. And it's going to be American retailers who, of course, are going to sell a lot less stuff because if they have to raise prices by 25%, sales are going to collapse. So the whole country is going to be clobbered by these tariffs. The Chinese are not the ones that are going to get hurt. It's going to be the Americans. So I really doubt that these tariffs are actually going to happen. The question is, what will happen between now and then uh, that, uh, you know, gets us out of jail that allows Trump to save face and still come up with a deal uh, that he can brag about. Now, of course, you know, he's bragging about the USMCA, which really did nothing to change NAFTA. So my guess is that something will happen uh, at the 11th hour so that these tariffs don't have to uh, kick in because the real loser, of course, would be the U.S., uh, American consumer, the economy. And I don't think Trump can risk that, especially given the overwhelming evidence of uh, rapid slowdown in the economy. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, it, it shows that a recession is imminent, and I believe it's going to be a much worse recession than the one that we now call the Great Recession. In fact, Donald Trump today, during his press conference, once again bragged and took credit for the U.S. currently enjoying the best economy ever, ever. I mean, going back to the birth of the republic in 1776, according to Donald Trump, this is as good as it gets. It's never been this good in the entire history of the United States. So, you know, he's not content with just saying we have a better economy than we had under Obama or the best economy in years or decades. He has to say the best economy ever. And he's just setting himself up for a huge fall. You know, the Democrats are going to be able to say in 2020 that we have the worst economy ever. 
and it's thanks to Trump. And he's really going to have very little ammunition, I think, to combat that, having already claimed credit uh, for making uh, the economy great. He is going to have to accept the responsibility when it turns out that it's not only not great, it is a complete disaster. And we had more evidence today of the disasters. Look at the uh, debacles du jour in the stock market. NVIDIA, I've been talking about NVIDIA a lot on this uh, podcast, mainly because it's one of these high-flying tech stocks, uh, and I like to watch it because all the momentum guys are in this stock. In fact, this stock three years ago was under 50 bucks, and earlier this year, it was almost $300 was the high. Uh, 292.76, I just pulled it up, was the high. Well, today they came out with bad earnings, And not only did they miss the number, but they guided lower. I think this is the second quarter in a row they've done that. And the stock got hilled. It was down just under 19% today. We closed at 164. This thing is down now better than 40%, right? The high was um, 292. And... I think it could drop to 100 bucks, maybe lower. Maybe it could drop 100 bucks from here. If you look at the chart, it looks terrible. And, of course, all the semiconductor stocks are getting beat up, too. It's not just NVIDIA. This was just the one that went down the most. But I think probably most telling for the recession is the retailers. Look at Nordstrom's. That was the debacle du jour in the retail sector, down almost 14% on the day, right, Nordstrom's, all the retailers, in fact, there's an index, the XRT is the uh, S&P index of retail stocks. This thing is almost at its October low. It's just off of it. It's now fallen for six consecutive days. That means it was down every day this week. And of course, it was down Friday of last week. You know, yesterday we got the retail sales numbers. And of course, everybody thinks, oh, the number is good, right? Because it came out much better than expected. Meanwhile, the retailers, the, the companies that actually sell stuff, right? The, their stock prices are plunging because their sales are falling down. And the, the public thinks or investors think that retail sales are strong because they're looking at these numbers. Now, let's look beneath the numbers so you can actually see what's going on. First of all, the prior month, right? The, the numbers that we got yesterday were for October. September, the initial number that we got was a gain of 0.1. So that was pretty weak. And now it was revised to a drop of 0.1. So they took the plus sign and turned it into a negative sign. So last month was even worse. Now, they were looking for an increase of 0.5 for October. And the actual increase was 0.8. Oh, wow. Well, it beat, right? 0.8. But if you take out autos, then it's only 0.7. But if you take out autos and gasoline, which you put in your autos, it was only up 0.3. What that means is that gasoline spending was up 0.4, right? Which is half of the 0.8. So half of the increase in retail sales was due to consumers spending more money on gas. Now, I don't think it's because they bought more gas and they traveled more. In fact, they probably bought less gas. It's just that they paid more money for the gas that they bought. So that's what's driving it. That's half the increase in the 0.8. So again, retail sales do not adjust for inflation. So there's two ways that retail sales can go up. Consumers can buy more or consumers can pay more. 
And if they're paying more, they may even be buying less. And that is not a good sign. In fact, if you look at the import prices also for the month of October, they were up by five-tenths of one percent, a half a percent in the month of October. Clearly, Americans buy a lot of imports. I mean, pretty much if you buy something, it was imported. So import prices are going up. That explains the increase in retail sales. What we're measuring here is inflation. We're not measuring the growth of the economy. And when you look at what's happening to the retail sector, right, look at the retailers, you know, reporting bad earnings and their stocks are blowing up. This is why. I mean, it doesn't help if you have to sell higher priced merchandise, if you have to sell less stuff because you have to charge more to cover increasing costs. That's one of the reasons that these retailers are so scared of the tariffs because they know what that's going to mean. If these tariffs are put on, then consumers are going to be spending a lot less money. I mean, even if they end up spending the same amount of money because of the tariffs, they're going to buy a lot less stuff. And that means the retailers are going to make a lot less money on a lower volume of sales. You had a couple of Fed guys out today. Fed Vice Chairman Richard Clarita was interviewed today on CNBC by Steve Leisman. I happened to catch that interview and was listening closely to what uh, Clarita had to say. And, and to me, basically, he almost admitted that when the Fed pretended to be data dependent early on, they really weren't data dependent at all. They were just raising interest rates because they wanted to get them higher. They were afraid at getting caught uh, with rates too close to zero uh, in the beginning of the next recession. So, you know, they wanted to reload that gun. So they wanted to get interest rates higher. Now, they kept saying they were data dependent, but I never really thought that they were. I mean, once they started to raise, I mean, they were just on autopilot. And to me, even the earliest uh, raises uh, didn't make sense given the data. But of course, once Trump got elected and everybody was so convinced that the economy was great, right? If you got Donald Trump saying this is the greatest economy we've ever had in the history of the country, I mean, where do you get off leaving interest rates at such emergency low levels? It would have been inconsistent for Trump to be saying we have the greatest economy in history and for the Fed to think that you know, the economy is so weak that we can't raise rates. So they have been raising rates, but now Clarita kind of, uh, you know, opened the door to the possibility that maybe some of the rate hikes that we think are coming aren't going to come because he talked about how now the Fed could be more data dependent than it was in the past, where in the past we talked about being data dependent, but we really weren't. But now we actually can be because now we're, we're closer to normal, what he said. We don't know where normal is, but apparently or neutral, whatever, but we're closer to that number. And since we're now closer to that number, well, we can take the data more seriously, meaning that if the data uh, comes out weaker than we think, well, then maybe we won't raise rates as much as we think. And I think Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan was also out today making similar comments that were initially taken as being dovish by the markets because, again, he was leaving the door open, apparently, to the fact that the Fed may not deliver as many rate hikes as the markets believe. But, you know, they really didn't leave any indication that they believe that the data that they supposedly depend on is going to be weak because both of these guys are still extremely upbeat and optimistic about the U.S. economy. As if none of this stuff that's happening around them, they, they can't even see it. You see even the stuff that's happening today. I mean, look at what's happening. So you got the semiconductors, uh, you got the retailers, you got the autos, you got the home builders, uh, you got all these sectors blowing up one after another, and you got the guys at the Fed are thinking there's no problem. In fact, 
also today, Jim Cramer on CNBC was out there critical of the Fed, basically saying that these guys don't know what they're talking about and that he's smarter than them and they ought to pay attention to what he's saying. Now, I mean, Cramer may in fact know more than the Fed because, you know, you got a really low bar there. It's not that hard to know more than the Fed. Although in many cases, you don't really know what the Fed knows because the Fed could be lying. We know this, right? Because that's exactly what um, Ben Bernanke said in that interview. I mean, I've mentioned that on this podcast. I forget the radio show that he was interviewed by, uh, but I remember listening to it. And maybe it was Motley Fool or something like that. But, you know, he was asked, you know, you know, they played some clips of Bernanke being wildly optimistic and upbeat about the economy in 2006, 2007. And then, you know, what happened, obviously, and he was particularly upbeat about the housing market. And he was asked, you know, how do you feel when you listen to this and, you know, you see how wrong you were? And instead of saying, well, I feel like an idiot, I feel like a fool, his answer was, well, I wasn't actually being honest. I mean, I really didn't think the economy was as good as I said because I couldn't exactly say what I really thought because I was a member of the administration and I kind of had to toe the party line. So now he's going back and saying, look, I knew things were bad. I just pretended that they were good because I, you know, I wanted to you know, go with the, the party. I wanted to be optimistic. But also another reason that I think that the Fed chairman likes to be optimistic is they never want to cause the crisis that they're worried about. They don't want it to be a self-fulfilling prophecy because if a Fed chairman publicly says, gee, I'm really worried about the economy. I think a recession is coming. Well, then businesses might react to that. Well, the recession's coming. I better not hire more people. Uh, I better not you know, make this investment. So the Fed is afraid of scaring the economy into a recession. So what the Fed wants to do is maintain confidence to keep the economy going as long as possible. But of course, that actually exacerbates the, the recession because you get businesses to expand when they shouldn't be. And so when the recession happens, they're particularly unprepared, and then the layoffs have to be even greater. I mean, you have a bigger bust because the boom is extended based on all the cheerleading coming from the central bankers. But, you know, for whatever reason, uh, either Bernanke was dishonest or he's just dishonest now, and he actually was that clueless, and he's embarrassed to admit it. So we have no idea for sure, you know, whether uh, Clarita or, or, uh, or Kaplan are being honest or, you know, they're just doing what they think they should do as members of the administration or as cheerleaders for the economy. But uh, Leisman is basically hearkening back to his 2008, you know, rant on CNBC where he said, the Fed knows nothing. They know nothing. Why aren't they doing something? The Why aren't they cutting rates? And so now he's looking back and he's saying, oh, you know, they should have listened to me. I was warning about the crisis and they didn't do anything. And, you know, I wish I had warned earlier because, you know, I waited a long time to warn and, you know, I, I, I should have warned even sooner. And so that's why he's, you know, he's sound the alarm now as if this guy was actually warning about the financial crisis. No, he wasn't. I mean, a few months before that rant, he was as bullish as anybody else. He was bullish on the economy. He was bullish on the stock market. Yeah. When everything started to implode, he finally figured it out before the Fed, right? Which doesn't doesn't take much. But sure, 
He recognized it at that point, but of course it was it was years too late to actually do anything about it. But now he wants to pretend that you know he was like Peter Schiff that he was out there warning about the financial crisis. He wasn't warning about anything, right? Yeah, you know when everything was imploding, yes, he he noticed what was obvious at that point, but he didn't see it with any kind of foresight. But he was earlier than the Fed, although we never know again because the Fed might have kept their opinions to themselves. But now he's basically saying, look, he's checking around. He's talking to his sources at companies and everybody is worried. Everybody is concerned that a recession is coming. And he's basically saying the Fed needs to do something. The Fed needs to, you know, pick up the phone and call some of these people and recognize that the economy is not nearly as strong as it thinks. You know, obviously, too, if Donald Trump is talking about this is the greatest economy in the history of America, clearly, if businesses are worried, well, you're not worried when it's the greatest economy ever. So obviously, he doesn't only think that the Fed is wrong. He thinks the president is wrong and everybody uh, who is covering this in the media uh, about this great economy. So he's urging the Fed uh, to you know back off, to slow down, because if they continue to hike rates, into this weakening economy, they're making the exact same mistakes that they made uh, going into the 2008 financial crisis. In fact, that's what he's saying. Now, what he's also saying, he's qualifying it by saying, hey, it's not going to be as bad, like the problems aren't as bad now as they were then. And that's where he's wrong, because they're actually worse. The problems we have now are worse than the problems we had in 2008. Again, it's all a function of degree. We only kept interest rates at 1% for a year. That's it. And then the Fed normalized them back up to 5% in a couple of years. So you only had three, maybe four years or so of rates being artificially low. And that inflated a bubble in real estate big enough to cause the financial crisis when it, when it popped, right? That's it. Well, the Fed kept interest rates at zero for six years. Six years, 0%. Then they started raising them. They've been raising rates for three years, and they've only got to 2%. That's it. So you've got eight years, right, or nine years, nine years of ridiculously low interest rates. And so the malinvestments, the misallocations of resources, the debt, the speculation that has been engendered by this monetary policy dwarfs what happened as a result of the Greenspan, you know, 1%. Rate. So we have a much bigger debt bubble uh, and it's going to pop in a much more spectacular fashion. But, you know, nobody wants to admit that something worse than 2008 could be around the corner. I mean, they may be willing to admit that we have some kind of recession coming, but I guess everybody wants to assume it's going to be a mild recession. Why would you assume that? I mean, if we produce this boom with the most amount of monetary heroin in history, why would we have a mild hangover, right? If we used more drugs than we've ever used in history, well, then we should have the worst hangover that we've ever had in history. In fact, I was listening to an interview also today on CNBC with Ray Dalio of Bridgewater, which Bridgewater is the largest um, hedge fund basically in the world. And this guy, you know, his offices are, you know, in Westport, Connecticut. So, you know, in my old stomping grounds, but I still stomp there in the summers. But now I'm I'm stomping around here in, in, in Puerto Rico. Uh, but but Ray Dalio, you know, said a lot of things that were true. I mean, in fact, I believe and I, I've never spoken to, to Ray Dalio personally, but I believe that privately he's a hell of a lot more bearish than he is publicly. I think that the guy 
uh, knows a lot more and is you know and doesn't want to come out and 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 you know and actually say what he thinks, you know, because he wants to you know uh, tone it down for prime time. But if you read the, between the lines, he knows a recession is coming and he knows it's going to be horrible, and and he's basically saying that the Fed needs to err. Uh, being too easy. He's worried that if they stay too tight, that the recession is going to come and it's going to be a disaster. And so he thinks the Fed should err on the side of easiness. And he thinks if, you know, if they're too easy and inflation gets out of control, well, that's an easier problem to solve than if we go into recession because it's going to be so bad. But that's where I disagree with Dalio, and I don't know if he actually believes it. I think that if inflation gets out of control, that's actually worse uh, than um, than what he's talking about. Because if inflation comes out of control, then we're going to get an even bigger recession because the Fed's going to have to raise rates even higher uh, to the extent that they you know fall behind the curve, which is what they're going to do. Because I do believe that they're going to start cutting rates. They may wait until we're officially in a recession. I don't know. But I do believe that inflation is going to take off anyway, because when we start to cut rates or even indicate that we're not going to continue to raise them, the bottom drops out of the dollar. And, you know, the amount of stimulus that would be required to try to reflate these bubbles, which is all the Fed ever does, they don't create legitimate economic growth. They just try to recreate the illusion of growth that we had during the previous bubble. But in order to do that, they need to come up with a bigger bubble. And since we have a bubble in everything, I don't think there's any way that they can make a bigger bubble than the one they just did. But they're going to try. But the amount of monetary stimulus that's going to be required, right, is going to be such a large dose that we are going to overdose, right? We're going to destroy the dollar. We're going to destroy uh, the treasury market in the process. So it's going to be much worse. But obviously, if you listen to that Dalio interview, he can see that the Fed is wrong, right? that they're too optimistic, that, that Trump is wrong, that the economy is not nearly as strong as everybody is pretending that it is. But now, if you look at what's happening with corporate earnings, if you're looking at what's happening in the stock market, at least the stock market is noticing the weakness. The next thing is for investors to actually realize that it's not just these few companies, right? It's not just contained to the companies that have already come out with with bad earnings, right? Because this is going to spread. It's going to go from company to company to company throughout the entire economy. And it's just like, again, in that subprime crisis, I mean, you had some companies came out with bad earnings and then, you know, or some uh, some mortgages defaulted and then it spread. Right. Or, or then all of a sudden higher quality mortgages. It's not just General Electric that's going to have a problem. It's not just IBM. These aren't the only companies that have been going into debt to borrow back stock. Right. And it's everybody. But I was reading this article again about the situation in, in California with the fires, but the, the utilities, these utility companies that may be driven into bankruptcy or may be saved by a bailout, but they are going to have to dramatically increase the utility prices in, in California because they're going to have to recoup their losses. And of course, they're going to have to deal with a big increase in the cost of buying insurance. And all that's going to have to be passed on to the consumer. And this is going on all around the country. And everybody is overloaded with debt. 
And as all these underfunded pensions, you know, government pensions are going to collapse, you know, because when interest rates really go up and the stock market comes crashing down, a lot of these pensions are going to be shown to be even more underfunded because now all the stock market gains that they had are going to evaporate and all the gains that they were extrapolating into the future, well, they're, they're going to have to, you know, go back to the drawing board. I mean, some people think, well, higher interest rates will help because that will give them a higher return on their bonds. No, it's going to destroy their, their returns that they've already had in the stock market and their assumptions about future returns. And to the extent that they already own bonds, well, those bonds are going to collapse in price due to an increase in interest rates. So all of this stuff is uh, is there on the horizon. And you're now seeing the early stages of it, just like we saw the early stages of it in 07 and 08. And people like Kramer were oblivious until, until the very end. Now, at least I guess to his credit, I think Kramer is seeing the problems earlier this time than last time. He's not waiting until the whole thing is imploding. I mean, it's it's starting, but at this to today, if you look at Jim Cramer talking relative to you know all the other people that come on that are just sunshine and rainbows, I mean, at this point, he's actually one of the better uh, better commentators on the network who's actually thinking and he's actually looking at his eyes and and, and seeing this stuff. He just doesn't realize just how bad he doesn't realize what he's actually seeing. I mean, he knows it's bad, but he doesn't completely comprehend it. Now, also yesterday, we got the FDA came out, you know, and made it official that they're going to seek to ban menthol cigarettes, right? Make it make it illegal for cigarette companies to legally sell, right? For uh, retailers to sell cigarettes that have menthol. And again, I, I don't think that legally they can do this. And obviously, the, uh, the tobacco companies will file lawsuits and there'll be a bunch of money wasted on a legal battle because I don't think the FDA even has it within their authority. Now, Donald Trump, who supposedly is claiming that he, you know, he wants to deregulate. I don't know why his uh, FDA is now trying to increase uh, regulation, even as he's talking about cutting it. But I guess, you know, that's uh, par for the course here when it comes to the administration. I mean, doesn't matter what he says. You got to look at what he does. And this amounts to a lot of uh, of new regulation. But again, if you listen to this guy talk and I listen to an interview uh, and 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 the, the main motivation for this ban is to reduce smoking for young people. Right. Youth smoking. The idea is that when young people start smoking, they're more likely to smoke the menthol cigarettes than regular cigarettes. And so if we ban menthol cigarettes, he thinks, well, fewer people, fewer young people will smoke. Right. Because they like menthol and now we make it illegal. And so I guess they're just not going to not going to smoke. Right. Which shows you the, the level of intelligence of somebody who actually works for the government. I mean, that's how simply they think things are. I mean, if it was that easy, I mean, why didn't prohibition work, right? When they made it illegal to drink, why didn't everybody just stop drinking? Look, I mean, pot's been illegal for a long time. Why didn't all the pot smokers just stop smoking? We're all kinds of drugs, cocaine, heroin. Why do we have so many people addicted to drugs when drugs are illegal? I mean, if you just pass a law and make it illegal and it actually works, right? But no, I mean, here you got a guy heading the FDA that is completely clueless about the reality, about the unintended consequences of government regulation. You know, I spoke about it a little bit on the last podcast, but I'll get into it again. I mean, this is going to backfire. 
I mean, doesn't this moron understand this? Right? The minute they make it illegal, assuming that they can do it, assuming they can actually ban menthol cigarettes, A, now menthol cigarettes are going to be more appealing and more popular than ever because you're doing something that's taboo. And who likes to be a rebel, right? Who likes to do things that you're not supposed to do more than any other group? The young people, the kids. Like the minute you tell them you can't do something, they want to do it even more, right? Forbidden fruit tastes that much sweeter. So if you make menthol cigarettes illegal, even people that don't smoke menthol, that's the ones they're going to want to smoke. Because right? that's the ones that they're being told by the adults not to smoke. So, of course, they're that much cooler if, if they smoke those. And, of course, if you have those, you have something that's cool. You have something that you can't legally buy. So everybody's going to want to get menthol. But it's going to be easier for the 15-year-olds and 14-year-olds to get menthol cigarettes. See, right now, there's not much of an illegal market in cigarettes. right? So if you want to buy cigarettes, you go to a real business and they ask you for your ID. They're going to card you because they don't want to lose their license, right? They don't want to break the law. They don't want to sell cigarettes to minors. So they're going to, you know, respect the law and they're going to check IDs and stuff like that. Uh, but the minute you make it illegal to sell uh, menthol cigarettes, but you have a lot of demand for menthol cigarettes because all these people smoke them, especially uh, in the minority community, African-Americans in particular, for whatever reason, they, you know, in that community, they, they prefer menthol. So obviously in the inner cities, right, there's a huge demand for these menthol cigarettes. And of course, you know, you got a bunch of gangs there anyway, and obviously, saying, oh, oh, here's a great opportunity. Now we have a brand new market here, menthol cigarettes. And now the market is a lot more lucrative because you can't buy them legally. So where do you buy them? Right? Well, you got to buy them from, uh, you know, from gangs. You got to buy them from criminals, right? So what's going to happen? See, when you have to go to an actual store and show your ID, right? Maybe the 14-year-olds can't buy them. But when the only place to buy menthol cigarettes is in the alley behind that store from a gangster, you think that guy cares how old his customers are? He'd sell them to a baby. What does he give a damn? He's already breaking the law. You can't, you, you know, once you're already selling something illegal, I mean, hell, it doesn't matter how old your customer are. You're already breaking the law, right? So they couldn't care less. They don't have a license to worry about. So now all of a sudden you, you, you create this lucrative black market. You put all these profits in. Now, of course, I think a lot of people will buy online. They'll be shipped in. There'll be all sorts of ways uh, to bring menthol cigarettes in. In fact, they, you know, Obviously, too, you can you know add menthol on your own. You don't need the cigarette companies to do it for you. You could buy the menthol and, and do it yourself, right? And people will do that. There'll be kits and all kinds of stuff. But there will be an illegal market. And because of that, young people, youths, will actually end up smoking more uh, menthol cigarettes. Now, what the FDA is claiming, and they probably have no scientific evidence to back, back it up, but they're claiming that they think because of the menthol and the fact that young people like to smoke menthol cigarettes, that more people are getting into smoking and therefore they're smoking as adults. So he's thinking that by making menthol more popular, it leads to more smokers and more people smoking later in life. Now, I, I don't know that that's actually the case. I, I, I don't think that's true at all. I think that people who want to smoke are going to smoke and if they prefer menthol, well, they'll smoke menthol. But if there's no menthol, they'll smoke the next best thing. Right? I don't think that you know it's it's the menthol they want. It's the nicotine, right? That's what they want. Then they're gonna get it however they have to inhale it, right? And they want to be cool, right? They want to have uh, they want to have the cigarette. So I don't think it makes a difference. But if 
the FDA is right. And by people smoking menthol cigarettes actually increases the overall incidence of smoking, then what the FDA is doing is actually going to lead to more people smoking. Because by taking menthol cigarettes out of the legal market and putting it onto the black market, you guarantee that more young people are introduced to smoking at an even earlier age and they're going to smoke menthol. In fact, the entire illegal market is going to be menthol, right? Because there's going to be no illegal market in regular cigarettes. So the only cigarettes young kids will be able to buy will be menthol cigarettes. And if you think menthol cigarettes are so bad, you're actually encouraging uh, more menthol cigarettes to be smoked. Now, speaking of kids, I want to talk a little bit about what's been going on in Bitcoin. I mentioned the big drop that we had in the price of Bitcoin on Wednesday. On Thursday morning, Bitcoin went on and continued to fall. I think the lowest I saw was just below 5200 on the price of Bitcoin before we rallied back. As I'm recording this now, it's you know just below 5500 uh, and it hasn't rallied. Ever since that big breakdown, we've been trading sideways in a very bearish pattern, right? It's basically you have a breakdown and then you have kind of like a wedge or a flag pattern, which is a continuation pattern of the, the move that preceded it. So I think we're getting ready for another big leg down. Meanwhile, a lot of people are talking capitulation. Oh, finally, we got capitulation. Nobody has capitulated. I don't think any of these hodlers uh, have thrown in the towel. Um, you know, and I do think eventually we're going to have capitulation, but I think that's probably years away. And I think it's going to happen at a much lower price than the price we have now. And it's going to happen with a lot less fanfare. There's going to be no coverage because by the time the hodlers capitulate, nobody's going to be paying attention. Uh, to Bitcoin anymore. I mean, CBC is not going to be covering it. They're not going to have this bug on their screen. In fact, now they expanded coverage. Now the bug includes a lot of other of the cryptocurrencies. So they're actually focusing more media attention on Bitcoin. Yet despite all this attention, uh, the price keeps falling. In fact, if again, if you look at Google uh, search engine, I mean, the searches are not going up. You're not getting more and more people interested in the market. But what I think is funny is, you know, I, I put out a couple of these tweets you know, just talking about this or tweeting about this. And, of course, I get a lot of comments. And there are a lot of people that, you know, want to say that I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, if I only understood the technology, right? A lot of young people are like, if Peter only understood the technology behind Bitcoin, he would understand. But I'm just too old to understand technology. Now, look, I mean, I admit I don't understand the technology or the as well as a software programmer would, you know, behind the blockchain and all the intricate things. I mean, look, I don't understand the technology in a lot of things that I use. I mean, I couldn't program uh, my computer, right? I, I, I couldn't build a cell phone, right? So, I mean, but I use these things. But you don't have to understand all of the intricacies behind the programming. I understand uh, a lot more about Bitcoin than, than people think. But... The one thing that I do understand is money. I understand what money is, and I understand what money isn't. And apparently, a lot of the people who are genius programmers and coders and really understand you know, the, 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 all the intricate technical details of the protocol and how it works, that's great. But you know, they, they don't see the forest for the trees. What they, they've lost sight of is the fact that they've created something that, that's not money. They've created something of no value. And I don't care. You know, people keep talking about all this proof of work. Work means nothing if you don't produce anything of value. 
the fact that you spend, you know, lots of money and lots of energy. You know, one person would, you know, would tell me that, oh, Bitcoin, it's, it represents stored energy. I said, no, it doesn't. There's no energy stored there at all. You expend a lot of energy to create a Bitcoin, but it's not like you can release that energy later on and use it. I can't use my Bitcoin to power something. All the energy is wasted. It's all gone. You know, at least the energy that is used to produce an ounce of gold, you now have an ounce of gold. You can't release the energy that was used to create it, but you can do something with the gold, with the metal, with the commodity that you have. You can't do anything with the energy that was used to create a Bitcoin. All you can do is hold on to it and give it to somebody else who can hold on to it. And I don't care how secure you think the protocol is, how you know how beautiful the blockchain is, none of that matters because at the end of the day, you don't have anything. Right? And now there's, you know, there's better than 2,000 of these uh, cryptocurrencies. It doesn't matter which one comes first because none of them are, are ultimately amount to anything. But of course, they can all be better than, than than Bitcoin because if it's if it's just about the the programming or the blockchain, if somebody can come up with one where it's faster, it's less expensive, well then you know what is Bitcoin worth? People keep saying, well, it's first. So what? A lot of things are first, and then they become worthless because somebody makes something better. And of course, but if somebody can make something better than Bitcoin, somebody can make something better than that. And so none of these currencies, uh, cryptocurrencies, are going to work. But even as you're seeing this thing melting down, people are just, you know, they, they're they too emotionally, uh, you know, involved, invested in this to, to understand it. And so they just want to, you know, criticize me and say that I don't understand it. I don't get it. You know, a lot of people are saying, well, Peter, you know, you don't get it because it's the young people. The young people are buying it. Yeah, I know the young people are buying it because they don't know any better. I mean, first of all, I'm not going to take my investment advice from a bunch of kids, right? They don't have a lot of life experience. That's the problem. They, they, they don't have experience with bubbles. They have, they've never seen one. For a lot of people who own Bitcoin, they didn't buy any of the dot-com stocks. You know, they didn't buy houses. This is the first bubble they've ever participated in. And they have no idea what it's like. They just know that they've made money. They bought Bitcoin uh, a few years ago, and they've confused a bull market for brains, which is what you're not supposed to do. Uh, but I think a lot of people are going to learn a very hard lesson. I know there are a lot of people that are upset that I'm not behind this because they think, you know, I should be behind it because I'm a hard money guy. I'm anti-fiat money. In fact, I think it's funny that so many people who are now in the Bitcoin uh, uh, you know, space you know, use the word fiat all the time. I mean, I never used to hear the word fiat mentioned by anybody. I mean, I would talk about fiat currencies, but I mean, it was never used in the mainstream until the cryptocurrency brought that term, you know, and made it popular. And now everybody has heard of fiat, right? Oh, I know it. Yeah. And, and so, uh, but unfortunately, one of the key things that makes money fiat, other than the fact that a government is declaring it to be money, is that the fiat money in and of itself has no intrinsic value. That's the real difference between fiat money and real money. It's not that the government declares it money because governments can also declare gold and silver money, but the gold and silver has real value, right? You don't have to rely on the government. You could just rely on the, the value of the metal itself. And in fact, the reason that 
countries, governments use gold and silver as money. The reason that gold and silver was coined was because the public already used it, even without the government. People already accepted willingly gold or silver as, as, as a medium of exchange. So the government didn't have to force people to accept gold and silver. They accepted it anyway. The difference is when the government creates paper money and they pass a legal tender law, they say, hey, you got to accept this. They're trying to force uh, the markets to accept currency. Now, when it comes to Bitcoin, right, no government is declaring that it's legal tender. No government is forcing you uh, to accept it, right? So in that respect, it's different from a fiat currency. But in the respect that it is very similar to a fiat currency is 100% of its value comes from faith, right? Gold's value comes from its unique properties and its uses as, as a metal, as a commodity. Bitcoin's value simply comes from the confidence and the faith that people will accept it in the future. Well, that's the same thing that gives all fiat currencies value. Apart from the fact that a government mandates it as legal tender, it's confidence. Because look, the Zimbabwe dollar is a fiat currency, it's legal tender, but it became worthless, right? The Argentine peso or the Reichsmark in Germany, right? These are fiat currencies that became worthless. Why did they become worthless? Because people lost their confidence. People lost their faith in the future purchasing power. Now, of course, that was precipitated by governments printing too much money, and that's how it's always precipitated. But once the confidence goes, even if they turn off the presses, it doesn't even matter. The, 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 the currency can implode because nobody wants it, and nobody wants to hold it. So Bitcoin is exactly the same. Bitcoin has value because people believe other people are going to want it. To do what with it? Well, to give it to other people, right? There's no actual user. There's no real world use for a Bitcoin. All you can do is give it to somebody else. And yes, I know it's secure and it's, you know, it's, you know, I, and, and, and it's got this great network and it's got all these, all this infrastructure and all, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, if no one wants it, none of that infrastructure has any value. If nobody wants to buy your Bitcoin, then your Bitcoin is worthless. And the reason that people have wanted to buy it in the past, at least most people, was the belief that the price would keep going up and they would get rich. Well, here now you have Bitcoin almost down 75% from its peak price. There are a lot of people that are now getting poor in Bitcoin. Yeah, there's still a bunch of people that bought it a long time ago and they're still up. Although, I don't know, some of those people might have averaged up. They might have bought more on the way up. And even though they have some real cheap Bitcoin, they may have some expensive Bitcoin. And who knows where their average price is. But there's still some people that are up. But the number of people who are up is going to continue to diminish as the price continues to go down. And once it's clear to everybody that Bitcoin is going down and all these cryptocurrencies are going down, then nobody's going to want them because they're no longer going to be lottery tickets to riches. They're no longer going to be you know, your ticket to Easy Street. All you have to do is buy this and hold it forever, right? And buy every dip and you're going to get rich. I mean, that's still what people think. People still think that this is a dip to buy, that 20,000 was just another stop on the way to a million. And that's not how markets bottom out. That's not capitulation. We've got a long way to go. And again, a lot of people, I hear this again on television, they're comparing the, um, the cryptocurrency market to the the dot-com bubble and and they're generally doing it in a favorable way right these are pro bitcoin guys that are out there saying hey you know when the dot-com bubble crashed sure a lot of dot-com companies went bankrupt 
but then others survived and thrived and went on to make new highs. And the point that they're making is, look, yes, a lot of these altcoins, right, the coins that are not Bitcoin, well, a lot of those coins are going to go to zero. But then Bitcoin and a few of the other big ones, you know, Ether or Bitcoin Cash or Dash or whatever you want, right? Some of these these best coins, they're going to go on and make new highs, right? That that um, Bitcoin is like Amazon or, or eBay, right? One of the companies that made it and, and, and went on and made made new highs or Priceline. I mean, some of these big companies, uh, you know, that crashed 90 percent uh, went on and, you know, got to even higher peaks than they did in 2000. But of course, the vast majority went to zero and, and never came back. But that's not a, a, a fair comparison because at least all those dot-com companies were businesses. They had services or products. I mean, they were all BS, but at least in theory, all these companies had the potential to make a profit. So people were betting that a business that was losing money would eventually make money because they were going to ramp it up. They were just getting eyeballs now. They were eventually going to monetize their platforms. And so, you know, there was at least something rational that people were betting on. When it comes to the cryptocurrencies, there's nothing real there. It's nothing but a pipe dream. It's a fantasy. Would it be great if these cryptocurrencies could replace fiat currencies, if we could basically take all the power away from the central bankers by just creating cryptocurrencies out of thin air? Yes, it would all be great. In you know, It's a libertarian wet dream, but it's not going to happen. People are going to wake up and it's going to be a nightmare uh, because none of these cryptocurrencies are going to survive. None of them are going to go on and make new highs. None of them are Amazon or eBay or Priceline. They're all... Pets.com.